The scripture text for this morning's sermon is found in Romans chapter 2, and I'll begin reading at verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. Father, we corporately feel a great need for you. Because we are weak and we are fallible and we are frightened and there is great uncertainty in the short run in our lives and sin tends to get the upper hand and make us wander. There is a sense of unworthiness upon us and having met you in worship so preciously and sweetly and having called out to you and tasted of you has this double effect of making us feel inadequate while admiring your great adequacy and glorious all-sufficiency. And so we're crying out now again that for another little while here you would stand forth this time from your word as I attempt to unfold it from Romans 2. Please, Lord, leave us not to our own resources here. Be the teacher in this moment and quicken dead hearts that they might live and see and hear and breathe and love and trust and obey and go to heaven instead of hell. Guard us from the evil one now and let your word come with the weight and the glory that is fitting in Jesus' name. Amen. It may seem strange to us as we read Romans that Paul lingers so long over sin. Chapter 1, verse 18, all the way down to 320, his program is to awaken a sense of sin in Gentiles and then in Jews, so that he comes to chapter 3, verse 9, and he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? And he says, No, because I've already charged in this unit of Scripture, I've shown you that Jews and Gentiles are under sin. So it might cause us to wonder, why? Why so long? Why so much space? Why so time? It's not, it's not the 20th, 20th century American way. To linger over sin so long. That's quick. And then good news, fast. Why? And there, there are some good reasons for this. Let me mention two of them. One is because 
the gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, will not land on us with the overwhelming wonder that it is unless we profoundly feel sinful and desperate and helpless before the holy God. It won't land on us that way. And it doesn't land on many people that way. The gospel is a light thing for many people. It's a flippant, simple, easy thing. But in fact, it's a great and glorious, weighty thing. That's one reason. Here's another reason. There is a tremendous resistance in us, me, to being told I'm a sinner. Not just that I do sins, but that I'm a sinner under the power of this alien thing called sin driving me from God and making me corrupt in my core. I don't want to hear that. There's a resistance to it. And there are all kinds of forms of this resistance. We're reading about one of them in this text here that Hamlet just read. Now, I want to illustrate this from a magazine article I was reading today before I get into the text. Before I, was, I was reading earlier this last week from uh, an author named William Kilpatrick, who is a teacher in the education department at Boston College and is, I believe, a Catholic. And he's writing an article entitled Faith and Therapy and talking about the dangers of the careless mingling of the therapeutic worldview, there was an author, uh, Reef, who wrote a book in 1966 called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. And if it was triumphing in 66, it is superabounding triumphing in 99. Over against it, a biblical worldview and the difference between these two worldviews, while there are some compatible elements, is that the therapeutic worldview basically sees all human problems in terms of mental health and appropriate therapy or treatment. Whereas the biblical worldview tends to see our problems in terms of sin and righteousness and forgiveness and redemption and sanctification and the Word of God and faith and, and the Holy Spirit's power. A cluster of ways of interpreting reality and me and how I relate to reality. And this other view that has a lot of that just kind of boiled down to me, my mental states, my attitudes about myself and other people, and therapy. Now here's his, here's his word that caught my attention that relates to the text. He writes, one of the most destructive consequences of carelessly mingling therapy and faith is a diminished sense of sin. The best evidence that this has already happened in the Catholic Church is the tremendous drop-off in the practice of confession in the last 30 years. When we couple this with the nearly 100% attendance at communion, in most parishes, we have to conclude that most parishioners don't have a very strong consciousness of sin. They seem to have been so schooled in the gospel of self-acceptance that they can't think of any sins they need to confess. 
colleague at Boston College told me a story that reinforces the point. He once asked members of a philosophy class to write an anonymous essay about a personal struggle over right and wrong, good and evil. Most of the students, however, were unable to complete the assignment. Why, he asked. Well, they said, and apparently this was said without irony, we haven't done anything wrong. We can see a lot of self-esteem here, he says, but little self-awareness. The absence of a sense of sin seems strange when one considers that most of these students have had years of Catholic schooling. Now, don't jump to the conclusion that this is an isolated Catholic phenomenon. It isn't. In fact, the article is devoted to uh, analyzing a good deal of even Protestant, Evangelical, and Catholic children's and youth curricula. And he tries to show how the dumbing down and the desacralizing and the despiritualizing and the taking away of awe and wonder and the replacing of it with stick figures has in fact made it almost impossible for young people to enter into any profound sense of their own sinfulness. They feel bad about lots of things. Everybody feels bad in America. That's worlds apart from, from feeling conviction for sin. Feeling bad that your relationships are going right or that you're discouraged or none of that is conviction for sin. Those are, don't confuse having bad feelings with being aware of sin and the profundity of it as that which offends the glory of God. Don't, don't make that mistake. And so it's a universal problem today, and the point of drawing your attention to the article is simply to say that one of the reasons God inspired Paul to linger as long as he did and approach it the way that he did in chapters 1 to 3 of Romans over this issue of our sinfulness is that we are very resistant to it. We find... You can see this in yourself, you can see it on television, you can see it almost anywhere you want to look, where somebody's cornered for having done wrong and are brought to the point of confession or conviction, there is a way of finding words that can soften it almost immediately, and the most common is by drawing in everybody else with us. We say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner just like everybody else. And those little phrases highlight the fact that we're not broken. That may be true. Everybody is a sinner. Making sure God hears it and the guy you're talking to is a sign you're not broken. I'm not broken. There are ways to keep this soft and easy and resist the evidences of our sinfulness so that we don't really have to weep over it. We don't have to feel the weight of it. We don't have to be snapped in two bite and brought to the point of desperation by it before a holy God. And Paul, out of great zeal for the gospel and love to us, won't let us off for a few chapters. The aim is brokenness and humility. This is the door to paradise. In fact, it's the road to paradise. You go through the gate and then you stay on the road of brokenness and humility.
all the way to the celestial city. And if you get off of it into some kind of self-congratulatory sense of having arrived, no more need for brokenness and no more need for humility and no more need for confession, you may never get on the road again. It's a very dangerous place to be. Now Paul sees this, and in these verses, he is dealing with one particular kind of resistance. In verses 17 to 24 of Romans 2. What he's dealing with here is something very close to home. Because if there's any place that John Piper or Bethlehem or conservative, Bible-believing, evangelical Protestantism is going to find itself, it's going to be in these verses. Because we are a people of the book, big time. I love the Bible. I want to know what the Bible teaches. I want to preach the Bible. And so did these folks that are being so severely criticized in this text. So we should be on the edges of our seats here wondering... Are we there? Do I see myself here? So much revelation to us Christian Bible believers. So much knowledge. So much truth. Surely it's our job to set things right in the world rather than repent. Now let's walk into this text. Don't want you to make the mistake here of, of, of reading these verse, verses uh, 17 to 19 or so and hearing all of these good things that are coming out of the law of God as, as uh, automatically negative. Look down at chapter 3 just to keep us from making that mistake. Look at chapter 3 verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Answer. Great in every respect. First, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So Paul agrees with that. Don't make the mistake when you read that in verses 17, 18, 19, that they've got the law, they've got the oracles of God, there's truth there, there's knowledge there, there's light there. That's true. But something's wrong. So now let's look at these lists. There are two lists of four advantages given in verses 17 through 19. Or 17 to 20. Let me show you these and how they're structured. Each list of four is followed by a clause that gives the reason for the list that just went before it. Verse 17, he says, you're a Jew. Okay, now here's, here are the four things. You rely upon the law. You boast in God. You know his will. And you approve things that are essential. And now comes the underlying reason. 
being instructed out of the law. You see, if you're being instructed out of the law, then you can rely on the sufficiency of the law and you can boast in God and you can know his will and you can approve things that are excellent. And that's true. Those aren't false things. Those aren't things that the Jewish people shouldn't have been doing. But something's wrong. We're going to see it. Something's wrong. And we Bible believers who boast in God and claim to know His will and approve the things that are excellent, we should be getting a little nervous here. Well, what's wrong with this? If you got the light... You got the light. Next unit, 1920. Number one, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind. Number two, a light to those who are in darkness. Number three, a corrector of the foolish. Number four, a teacher of the immature. And now comes the second underlying clause. Having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You see, that phrase corresponds to verse 18, being instructed in the law. And this one supports these four. So if you have the law, and in the law is the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, then yes, you're going to be confident that you're a guide to the blind, and you're going to be confident that you have light for those in darkness and can correct the foolish and teach the immature. Yes. What's wrong? What's wrong with that? Well, there's a difference between these two units. You saw it, I think. The first four talk about what's going on inside as they have and study the law. They're boasting in God. They know His will. They're approving of things that are excellent. And nothing is said about how they take that, how they take that and deal with other people. But the second unit of four is all about how they deal with other people, namely, guide, they shine, they correct, and they teach. So in the first unit, they have the light, and in the second unit, they shine the light. And there's nothing wrong with that, is there? What's wrong here? If you've got the light, by all means, don't keep the light to yourself. Shine. And if they're foolish people, correct them. And if they're little children, teach them. And if there's a great God in this law, boast in that God. What's wrong here? What's the problem? There's something wrong. And verse 21 tells us, You therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? Now, the answer to that question is, you don't. We know that. We saw it last week from the way the passage flows on the end of verse 24, where Isaiah 52, 5 is quoted to support how the nations blaspheme because of the inconsistency of these people. They're not teaching themselves. The word, therefore, at the beginning of verse 21 means something like this. Well, if you have all this knowledge, if you know this God, if you can instruct the foolish and correct people and shine like light in the darkness, if you can do all this, therefore, surely you are cor 
correcting or teaching yourself. And they're not. What does that mean? What does it mean? You are not teaching yourself. You're a teacher of others. Preacher, elder, Sunday school teacher of adults or children, Bible study leader. And you're not teaching yourself. I translate that to mean you're not getting it. You don't get it. Forms are being manipulated of language, a form of godliness. You have in the law the form of knowledge and truth. And you're dealing in forms and structures. What Paul is going to call next week the letter, not the spirit. And something's massively wrong in your life. There are many preachers and many Sunday school teachers and many leaders of Bible studies who only deal with the forms. You don't get it. You don't teach yourselves, he says in verse 21. You're not getting it. Now he illustrates. Verses 21, second half of the verse, and 22. Three illustrations. He says, You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now what would Paul say if the answer came back, no, never have, never will. Never stole, never committed adultery, last place you'd ever find me is in a pagan temple, stealing anything. The answer to your questions, Paul, is no. What would he say? I think he would say three things. Or let me put it this way. I think he could say three things, given what he teaches in the whole book of Romans. And I put it that way because I have more confidence that what I'm about to say is true than I do that it's in this text. <laughs> you know the difference? A preacher has to, when he's not sure of all that's implied in a particular word or phrase, at least be sure it's taught in the book. Now, I think it's in the words, but I'll be honest with you, the commentators are all over the map on those three things and how they can be spoken as true of the Jewish people in Paul's day. Steal, adultery, rob temples. What does that mean? And I think Paul would respond in these three ways. Number one, he would say, okay, 
I know what you're saying. You're right at one level. Of course, not every Jew is a thief. And of course, not every Jew is an adulterer. And yes, the last place most of you would be found is in a pagan temple taking idols out. But some of you do. Some Jews do steal. And some Jews do commit adultery. And some Jews really do plunder pagan temples. And so know this at least. Know this. Having the law as a Jew doesn't count for anything. Unless you do it. And he's already said that. I feel real safe in saying he'd say that because he said it in verses 12, 13, and 14. We saw it already. It is not having the law. It's not saying, we've got the oracles of God. We are the favored people. We can't enter into judgment. Look at the privileges of the history of Israel. And Paul says, it doesn't work. It's not having or hearing. It is doing. So don't make the switch from having to security. So Bible-believing, conservative, evangelical, Protestant lovers of the Word of God, having it, reading it, and studying it is no security if you don't get it. Second thing I think he would say is, I know that all of you don't do these specific three things that I've just listed here by way of illustration, but all of you do something that's contrary to the will of God. And therefore, you should be concerned about how to get right with the Holy God and whether... The law alone, as it was delivered by Moses, has the whole answer to the question of how a sinner can get right before a holy God, or whether it's just pointing towards something through animal sacrifices that I'm bringing you now in the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen with a fresh, new righteousness that you can have by faith. In other words, okay, these three may not be your problem externally. But be honest with yourself. Are they not things in your mind and in your heart and in your life and behind your closed doors like these things? I think that's the second thing he might say to show the need of the gospel. But the third thing is where I want to linger and uh, try to persuade you that this kind of answer he could also give. If his listeners heard him say, do you steal? You who preach, don't steal. Do you commit adultery? You who say, don't commit adultery. Do you rob temples? You who say, I hate idols. And they say, no. And he would say, yes, you do. Every one of you. Yes, you do. And they would say, whoa, how so? What do you mean? And he would say, I've already said to you, verse 21, uh, you're not teaching yourselves this law. You're not getting it. You've got this whole law. 
and you don't understand what the law is all about. They say, really? What's the law all about? And the answer is that the law is all about being broken and contrite before God with a sense of helplessness and a casting of ourselves on the mercy of God and a trusting of His grace. The law is all about faith in the mercy and grace of God. The law is all about faith and a life lived by faith. Not using the law as something whereby we demonstrate our righteousness or something whereby we climb on a ladder of moral wherewithal to show that we can get to heaven by means of this glorious law that God's given us. You're you're not getting it. You're not getting faith. You have, in fact, stolen the one thing from God that you can give to God that brings Him glory. And that's faith. Romans 4.20 The one thing that Abraham could render to God is faith that calls attention to his trustworthiness and his grace and his all-sufficiency and his power and his glory and not our own. And you rob God of the one thing that he deserves from you and that is trust like a little child in his all-sufficient care and gracious provision. And what is this robbery but adultery? To whom does your heart belong? Who is your husband? If you take away your heart, if you take away your faith, your covenant loyalty, your trust and your childlike reliance upon your God and give them to another, yourself or your morality or your religion or your sacraments or your baptism or your money or your family or your intellect or your looks. You're an adulteress. Because your heart and your faith and your loyalty belongs to one and one alone, God Almighty. So if you rob Him of faith that He deserves from you, you are committing adultery. And whose values are you embracing when you do that? Whose idols are you bowing before when you do that? The world's. And so you rob them. You plunder their temples and take their values and their idols and put your faith and your trust in them, their money, or their way of getting ahead, their fame, their strategies. Now, you have a right to ask me, Where in the world are you getting that interpretation out of these verses? And here's the way way I thought about this. I, I read this and have struggled with it for weeks as to what is going on here in this text. And here's what I decided to do. I said, all right. There's, there's, an, there's a sense in this text that something is profoundly wrong in the Jewish 
self-understanding as they handle this law in teaching. They're not teaching themselves. They're not getting it. And so I ask myself, what are they not getting? That's, that's the key here. What are they not getting? And so I decided I'm going to read the rest of the book asking that question. What are they not getting? Now go with me to what proved to be two key texts. Let's go to chapter 9, verse 30. You don't teach yourself. This book is not opening for you. You're dealing with it at a letter level, at a superficial level. Oh sure, you're shedding a lot of formal light abroad in the world. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal. That's good, that's nice, that's light. But you don't get it. You don't get it. There's something beneath there. Now what is it? What are they not getting? And that's what these three verses, 30 to 32 of Romans 9, tell us. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness? Even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they didn't get it. Or, as he says here, because... They did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. Do you feel the weight of that? What does that text say the law is all about? The law is all about faith, not works. And the whole Jewish community had read the law... And they had turned it into a book of works whereby they could demonstrate their righteousness to a holy God and thus presume to be acceptable because of their moral strivings. And thus there was a tremendous formal external righteousness. And it was very bright. And it was wrong at the core. They didn't get it. Let's read that verse again. Verse 32 is one of the most important verses in the Bible with regard to understanding the law. Why did they pursue the law and not arrive at what the law really was about? And the answer is because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though. Do you see that? As though. This is not real. This is not what the law is about. This is what they said it was about. As though it were by works. The law is not about works. The law is about faith. Trusting God. Trusting grace. Hearing the message on Sinai. I am the Lord. The Lord. A God merciful and gracious. Abounding in steadfast love. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Can you hear the message of the law? That's Exodus 34, at the center of the Torah. I am a God merciful. 
I am a God gracious. I forgive iniquity. I forgive transgression. I forgive sin. Do you know how to relate to me? Quit this legalistic striving stuff to show yourself right with me. You can't do it. You will never make it. There is only one hope for you. My grace, my mercy, my forgiveness. Cast yourself upon me helplessly as a sinful child and plead for mercy and I will wipe away your transgression and you will say with Psalm 32, Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord holds no iniquity. That's, that's the law. That's the Torah. And they didn't get it. They didn't get it. And so when Christ came embodying the law, the telos, the goal of the law, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Because he embodied that message. He was that message. He was the fulfillment of everything the law was all about. Trust me. Trust me. I came into the world to save sinners, not to gather righteous people. They didn't get it. Now, I had this confirmed a little more as I looked at 10. Just drop your eyes down to chapter 10, verses 1 to 3. Brethren... My heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is my kinsmen, my Jewish, my family, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. Now here comes a phrase that just blows your mind in view of chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. Because in chapter 2, verses 17 to 20, if anything is true, it's that the Jews have knowledge. They've got in the law, they've got the embodiment of knowledge and truth, and they've got light, and they're teaching the world. And here Paul says, and he's not speaking doublespeak here, he knows exactly what he's doing. He says, I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. Well, which is it? Do they have knowledge, or don't they have knowledge? And the answer is, they have knowledge. And they don't have knowledge. Right? You, you can handle that, can't you? You know that, don't you? You can have a knowledge and not get it. You can talk words of love to your spouse on, on Valentine and it not be there. There's all kinds of form that goes on between parents and children, wives and husbands, pastor and people, forms. And nobody's kidding me. We're talking about spiritual reality that shines through words. Or it doesn't. And when it doesn't, you're in chapter 2, verses 17 to 20. And they're not getting it. And Paul so longs for them to get it. What don't they know? Verse 3. 10.3 It's the zeal that they have for the law is not according to knowledge. Why? For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking you could insert here by means of the law misunderstood by seeking to establish their own they don't subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That is, they're not people of brokenness and humility and faith under the almighty righteousness of God. 
which can be by faith given to them freely through Jesus Christ for their salvation. Instead, no, don't want to submit. Don't want to submit to that. Rather, give me some works. Give me some works to do so that I can show that I'm not such a bad person after all. And I will climb. I will climb my way in. Thank you. None of this stretcher business. I think even if that truth is not carried by the words of chapter 2, it is carried by the book. So let me sum it up and then apply it to Bethlehem. You steal, you're adulterers, and you rob temples. Really? How so? There is one thing that God wants from you. Just one. Faith. And you won't give it to Him. In fact, you don't even see it in the book. All you see is rules. Rules, 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 rules. And if I can keep these rules, my conscience will be clear and my God will like me. And you don't get it. And in withholding from Him that faith in a merciful, gracious God who supplies a righteousness to us, which we cannot supply for ourselves, and taking that faith away from Him and putting it in our own moral strivings or our religious performances, we are adulteresses. Robbing from our husband in heaven the affection, the heart, the loyalty, the love, the dependence, the childlike submission that is only his. And where do we get this idea? Where does the idea of self-reliance come from? Where does the idea of showing yourself somebody and sufficient come from? It comes from pagan temples. That's where it comes from. So yes, we steal. And yes, we commit adultery. And yes, we rob temples. And what's the point for Bethlehem? We're a people of the book. We're a people of the book. And I'm a preacher of the book. And you all love the book. And you memorize the book. And you teach children. And lead Bible studies. And boast in God. And so the question to us is, do we teach ourselves? Do you hear the warning? If there's any place in the book of Romans where this church and conservative, Bible-believing, truth-defending, Protestant evangelicalism can find itself, it's right here. And we should tremble. And I do. I do. Crying out to God over these sermons. Oh God. Oh God, may it not be found that having preached to others, I myself would be a castaway. It is possible. May the Holy Spirit come right now and show everyone in this room 
in the heart the difference between the righteousness established on your own and the righteousness received by faith alone from God through Christ who covered our sins and fulfilled the law for us. May the Holy Spirit come and make it plain to you so that you can say, I got it. I got it. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame. That means the sweetest frame of mind or the sweetest frame of heart. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Oh, Father in heaven, we take our stand on Jesus and the righteousness that you hold out to us freely in him. And we embrace him and we trust him and we accept our indictment. And we cast ourselves upon you for your mercy. And we receive the glorious promise of forgiveness and justification. And in that great hope we go through Christ and all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.